the book of Genesis was written by Moses. The first hearers of the book of Genesis, or the first readers of the book of Genesis, would have been the Israelites, who had come out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, and who were about, at the time Genesis was written, to enter into the promised land, namely Canaan, where Abram was living, where all of these things transpired. I think it's especially important with regard to the passage tonight to think about what the original hearers would have heard and would have understood from this passage in order for us to properly understand what it means and how it might apply to our lives. Obviously, we see in this passage a contrast between kings. You look in this passage and there are two kings. There's the king of Salem, who appears first. We see in, or well, sorry, the king of Sodom actually appears first in verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheba. But then there's this interlude where we see the king of Salem, namely Melchizedek in verse 18, coming and bringing out bread and wine. And the first significant interaction that is detailed for us here in this section is not with the king of Sodom, but is with the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and we're told that he is the priest of God Most High, and he blesses Abram, and Abram gives him a tenth of everything. And then we have an interaction with the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, Give me the persons, verse 21, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And lifting his hand is basically like taking an oath. I do solemnly swear. Right? This is basically what's going on in this section. Abram is very warm towards the king of Salem. Right? But he's a little bit standoffish towards the king of Sodom. He receives the bread and wine from the king of Salem, but he rejects this gift of the possessions that he had recovered from war that the king of Sodom offers to him. And so there is clearly here in this section a contrast between kings. What are we to make of this? Well, we should note that the king of Salem brings essentially token gifts. Bread and wine, verse 18. Abram is a wealthy man. He can afford his own bread and wine. So what the king of Salem is bringing to Abram is not really gifts that will actually enrich Abram, per se. What the king of Salem is bringing is gifts with a symbolic significance. Token gifts. Apparently in those days, bread and wine was a common gift to bring to kings. And so, if someone was to appear before royalty, they might bring with them bread and wine as a symbol of the honor due to the kings. Some theologians throughout history have made an allusion to communion here, but I think that's very far overreaching. Really what's happening is simply it's bread and wine. It's, in a, gift, it's a gift of honor and deference and respect to kings. 
And so Abram accepts this. As we talked about last week, he is somewhat of a king, something of a king. He is basically a king of a nomadic city-state. We see, even from the first half of chapter 14, that the way things were organized in the land of Canaan and in the surrounding areas at that time was that it wasn't one overarching government that ruled over everything, one empire. Rather, it was kings of city-states who made alliances with one another, who, who formed allegiances with one another for the mutual protection of their various city-states. And these coalitions of kings would go to war against one another. Abram, as we saw last week, had many, many, many people in his household or under his care or traveling with him in his nomadic lifestyle. We extrapolated from the fact that he had 318 trained men who had been born in his house, who he took with him to war, that he would have therefore had many, many more hundred servants in addition to these trained men who would be traveling with him. And so we see that basically Abram was the king of a a traveling nomadic city-state. And secondly, he had the divine promise that all of these lands would be given to him and to his children as their possession. And so in some sense, though there was really no overarching empire in existence at that time, if there were, who would have a more rightful claim to it than Abram? And so as the king of Salem brings out bread and wine to Abram as a symbol of honor, as a symbol of respect, uh, Abram readily receives it. He understood the nature of the promises that God had made to him, something of the dignity and the gravity accompanying those promises such that he's not reticent to receive a gift like this but to acknowledge that indeed he is blessed by the Lord he doesn't protest no I'm undeserving or so on and so forth he's, he's implicitly recognizing that Melchizedek has made a right assessment that even as the New Testament speaks in lofty terms of Abram so Melchizedek through his gifts speaks in similarly lofty terms of Abram here and Abram receives these things. It's as if he knows that he is to be the father of the faithful. That he is to be the heir of all of these lands. And obviously he knows these things from God's promise to him. Which is recorded in Genesis and chapter 12. And so Abram receives all of these things. The king of Sodom, by contrast, brings gifts of actual value. Verse 21, he says, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Take the spoils of war for yourself. This would actually enrich Abram. Abram was already rich, but obviously rich people can become richer. We all know that. And so everything that Abram had recovered in war would actually significantly enrich him if he were to take these things. Some commentators have said that the king of Sodom is actually fairly stingy here in that Abram was entitled to everything that he had recovered as a spoil of war. And so the king of Sodom is trying to obtain at least some portion of that by framing it in such a way as if really 
the king himself was owed everything and he's being generous towards Abram. So he's framing it in somewhat of a dishonest way. And so what was contrasted here is the generosity of the king of Salem with the stinginess of the king of Sodom. But I think that's a bad way to read it. I think, and I think, I think I'm on firm ground here because the text itself helps us understand how Abram interpreted the gift. Abram says in verse 23, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. So here we see Abram acknowledging that these things actually do rightfully belong to the king of Sodom. So we can't say that the contrast is between the generosity of the king of Salem and the stinginess of the king of Sodom. So what is being contrasted here? And what is the reason for Abram's warmth and receptivity toward the king of Salem, but his refusal to accept the gifts from the king of Sodom and his uh, attempts here to keep the king of Sodom at arm's length? Well, perhaps at least at some level, what's going on is Abram's desire to keep himself far from the wickedness of the Sodomites. We have already been told in the unfolding narrative of Genesis that there was great wickedness happening in Sodom and perhaps Abram wants nothing to do with it. And so he's a little bit more at arm's length. The way that if something transpired here in Barbados and one of you did some sort of heroic deed and then let's say some well-known corrupt politician or, or some leader of an organized crime uh, organization came to you and said, oh, here, here's a reward for you. If you knew that person's reputation, you might say, I don't want anything to do with it, simply to keep yourself clear. That's probably partly what's going on here in this section. But again, that's not the full picture because Abram doesn't reason like that. Abram doesn't say, I have sworn I'm not going to take anything that's yours because you are wicked and I don't want anything to do with the wickedness. What Abram says in this passage is, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap. That's a euphemism, or not a euphemism, an idiom, representing the whole span of things. A thread is thin, and a sandal strap is thick. And so he's basically saying, I'm not going to take anything thin or thick from you. It's an idiom saying, I'm not going to receive anything from your hands. And Abram's reason is, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. That's Abram's reason. And so we have textual clues here in Abram's response as to what exactly is going on uh, with this king of Sodom in contrast to the king of Salem. The original hearers, Israelites on the brink of Canaan, would have understood from this The certainty, Abram's confidence in the certainty of God's promise. The security of relying upon God alone. And they would have been encouraged to trust God for the promised blessing instead of shortcutting. Remember, God repeatedly through the Exodus narrative says that He is the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he comes to the people of Israel saying how he remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for that reason, he's dealing with the people of Israel. Thus, Abraham was highly revered by the Israelites. And to see their ancestor, Abraham, refusing to be blessed by some other earthly king, refusing to gain security from some other earthly king, refusing to use another earthly king as a crutch, but relying on God alone. They would have been encouraged as they were making their way into the promised land that though there are no other kings allied together with them, yet as their father Abraham trusted in God and God alone, so they can trust in God and God alone. They would have been encouraged that it is indeed Yahweh who has brought them safe thus far and Yahweh who will lead them home. As they read the narrative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they continually see Yahweh, Yahweh being the blesser of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't see the patriarchs building their dynasty through alliances with other kings, reliance on this and that and so on and so forth, but they see Yahweh's hand continually upon their forefathers. And the unfolding of providence in such a way that is good for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and good for his descendants. And they would have been encouraged by these things on the cusp of taking the promised land that as their forefather Abraham did here in this section, so they also ought to do and not depend elsewhere, but depend upon God and to trust that God will certainly bring, bring to pass His purposes even if they are not helped by any other earthly hand. As they were helped by seeing that in this text, so we should also be helped from seeing that in this text. Abraham is held up in the New Testament as an example of faith. And here we do see his faith at work, that Abraham is not hedging his bets, so to speak. Abraham is not diversifying his portfolio here in case Yahweh doesn't come through for him. Abraham is putting all his eggs in one basket, as it were. That he will be blessed by Yahweh or he won't be blessed at all. And just as that would have encouraged the Israelites on the brink of entering the promised land to make Yahweh and Yahweh alone their hope, so it also ought to encourage us to make Yahweh and Yahweh alone our hope. This is not to prohibit us from acquiring earthly wealth. There's nothing wrong with having a good paying job or receiving an inheritance if a relative passes away or something like this. It's not... That's not what this text is about. That we need to not get any money unless it drops down out of heaven into our laps. That's not what this text is about. But when we understand Abram's refusal of the gifts in light of God's promises and Abram's reliance upon God and God alone to bring that which he had promised to pass and to refuse to let anyone else take credit for bringing what God had promised to pass to refuse to 
place his security and his trust anywhere else, or even to divide his security and his trust between Yahweh and earthly kings, right? but to trust in God alone and to look to God alone. This helps us understand that we should likewise be looking to God and to God alone for what He has promised. Reconciliation to God, we must look only to God, to God alone. The pardon for our sins, to be clothed in righteousness, even as our brother read for us earlier from the law, that we ought not to take part of Christ's righteousness and then add in some of our own works of the law along with it. But either we will be blessed by Yahweh and Yahweh's provision alone, or we won't be blessed at all. Right? That the new heavens and the new earth, how will we inherit these things? By positioning ourselves in places of earthly power and working towards the improval of the civic situation for Christians worldwide in order that someday the balance of power will tilt in our favor and we shall become heirs of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? No, of course not. But to look for Yahweh to do this, to make all things new for us and on our behalf, to refuse to divide our confidence, to divide our security between Yahweh and other things or other people. And so whatever we might acquire, whatever positions of power we might hold, etc., etc., these things are not prohibited by Scripture, but we ought not to never, we ought never to divide our allegiances or our confidences between Yahweh and anyone or anything else. And so Abraham, Abram, pardon me at this stage, Abram is an example to us here in this section. And that's the contrast between the kings. The king of Salem is actually positioning himself under Yahweh as a servant of Yahweh or as a, in some sense, as a priest, as a spokesman of Yahweh, but as as a king, as one who recognizes Yahweh's blessing of Abram. Whereas the king of Sodom is positioned in this passage of Scripture as an alternative to Yahweh or as a diversion from Yahweh. So there's a contrast between two kings here in this section. But we need to also see that there's a contrast between priests in this section. If you look at your Bibles, you might be puzzled by that because you only read about one priest in this passage. That's Melchizedek. So where's the contrast between priests here in this passage? Again, thinking about how the original hearers would have understood it helps us to get the proper meaning of this passage and to make proper application to our lives. If you took the average Israelite who came out of Egypt, who lived through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant with the physical nation of Israel to describe the priesthood. They would answer by describing the Aaronic priesthood. In other words, those descended from uh, Aaron, right? Or going back, Levi. They would describe to you the Levitical 
or the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was a descendant of Levi, and it was, it was only those from that tribe who could serve as priests in Israel. And so if you ask the original readers of Genesis about the priesthood, they would certainly describe to you the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. What we see here in this passage is a contrast between the Levitical priesthood and, if I may say it this way, the Melchizedekian priesthood. That's what's going on in this passage. What we see here is that Melchizedek's priesthood is legitimate. Melchizedek's priesthood is legitimate. But we know that the Mosaic law prohibits any who are not descended from Levi from serving as priests. And yet, here in this passage, we see a legitimate priest who is not nor could have been descended from Levi because Levi hadn't been born yet. We read in verse 18, the narrator telling us that Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. And we also see in verse 22, lest anyone should still be suspicious that God Most High is the name of some pagan deity. Abram saying in verse 22 that Yahweh is God Most High. Or God Most High is Yahweh. In other words, the narrator then is telling us in verse 18 that Melchizedek is a priest of Yahweh. And the way that Abram responds to this priest of Yahweh further enforces his credibility and his legitimacy. Abram doesn't say, I'm a worshiper of Yahweh and you're a pagan priest and I want nothing to do with you. But Abram, Abram buys in completely to what's going on here. A priest comes and pronounces a blessing upon him in the name of Yahweh. And Abram accepts the blessing. He receives the gift. He receives the blessing. Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Again, this was apparently a fairly common way of responding to priests in this broader culture here in this section. So Abram, in in paying a tithe to Melchizedek out of the spoils that he had taken in the war, is acknowledging the legitimacy of Melchizedek in his priesthood. And so, if you think then about how the first readers of this passage would have understood it, it helps us understand the meaning better because we in our culture in our context might read it be like what's going on here what's happening with Melchizedek and so on and so forth but the Israelites would have very clearly picked up on the fact that Melchizedek was not descended from Levi which would have by good and necessary consequence taught them a very important lesson God's plan is bigger than the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people, the Israelite nation. God's plan is bigger than His dealings with the Israelite nation. 
And this is, in fact, the argument of the author to the Hebrews when he deals with Melchizedek in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. We read in Hebrews 5, 4 that no one can take a priesthood to themselves unless God has appointed him to his priesthood. So implicitly, God had appointed Melchizedek to his priesthood. If he is a legitimate priest, God therefore had appointed him to his priesthood. The author of the book of Hebrews unfolds further argumentation concerning Melchizedek. The author to the book of Hebrews talks about the how the blessings of the Levitical priesthood are temporal while Christ's are eternal. In his extended line of argumentation, he talks about how those sacrifices could never take away sins, both because of what was offered, the blood of bulls and goats, and also the weakness of that priesthood due to the mortality of its priests, that you you just didn't have somebody who could intercede for you for all time and forever. But your priests themselves would die. Your priests themselves were subject to death, and therefore they could not deliver you from death. And so there was a temporality and an inefficacy bound up in the Levitical priesthood. These things, Hebrews tells us, were instructive about a greater priesthood. And the author of Hebrews draws on the absence of a given genealogy of Melchizedek way back in Genesis chapter 14 to make his point. The author of Hebrews isn't actually saying that Melchizedek is immortal, never dies, but he's, he's, he draws on the fact that there's no genealogy given for Melchizedek. It, it's as if Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere, as if he dropped from heaven acts as a priest, and then it's as if he goes and ascends back up into heaven. We never hear from him again in the pages of Scripture. He's, re- he's referenced Psalm 110 and throughout the New Testament, but he's never, we're ne- we don't read about his birth, we don't read about his death. It's as if he's eternal, because he's just this figure who, as far as the narrative is concerned, was never born and never dies. And so, the author of Hebrews draws on that literary feature to say that Melchizedek resembles or prefigures Christ who really is an eternal priest. A priest who never dies. A priest who always lives to make intercession for his people. And the argument of the author of Hebrews is that Therefore, we should have known from Melchizedek that there was a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. That's the author to the book of Hebrews. We would miss that if we were not careful to think about how the original readers would have understood this and what it would have taught the original readers. But you could not be an Israelite on the brink of entering Canaan without realizing from this passage that there's a bigger priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. That's an inescapable conclusion from this section.
which also teaches then that, well, the Levitical priesthood was parochial, that is limited in scope. There is a priesthood that is bigger. The Levitical priests acted only on behalf of those who came to the tabernacle and then the temple in Israel, offering sacrifices and interceding on their behalf and their behalf only. They didn't intercede for the Philistines or the Amalekites or any of the other nations, but they interceded for the people of Israel. What we see is that there is a priesthood here in Genesis chapter 14 that isn't restricted to a particular ethnic group, that isn't restricted to the Israelites. One might argue, well, he was serving a different ethnic group. And so God provided the Levitical priesthood for the Israelites. God provided Melchizedek for another ethnic group. And God has probably done likewise for all the various peoples in the world such that all roads lead to the same destination. This is the kind of argumentation that comes up sometimes as people twist and distort the Scriptures. Let me just read to you. You don't have to turn there. But let me just read to you Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. God speaking to the people of Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, we understand from that verse, an implication of that verse is there weren't several chosen peoples. There was one chosen people. The Jews. The Israelites. The physical offspring of Abram. And so what we need to understand then from that is that Melchizedek's priesthood wasn't parochial as the Levitical priesthood was and that the Levitical priesthood served the Israelites and Melchizedek served the Canaanites or something like this. But Melchizedek's priesthood would have been for everybody and anybody walking the face of the earth at that time. If there, were, if there are no distinctions between peoples in the Old Testament other than Jews and Gentiles then there is no distinction between those whom Melchizedek would serve prior to the establishment of the Jewish nation. And so there is a priesthood then which is better than the Levitical priesthood, not not only in the sense that it is eternal and efficacious, Christ Jesus who always lives to make intercession for His people, who offered Himself as an atoning sacrifice, but there is a priest who will, uh, who will deal with people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and not Jews alone. These are inescapable conclusions for the first readers of Genesis. The Israelites entering into the Promised Land would have had to understand these things, would have had to deduce these things from Scripture. The Levitical priesthood is not the be-all and end-all. There is a priesthood which transcends these things. The author of Hebrews draws it out further and more explicitly. Talking about how Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, and therefore Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. 
That's what the author of Hebrews says. And it's a little bit of a strange statement to our ears. But basically the logic there is that if you'll excuse the pun, Levi already existed in seed form within the loins of Abram. And it's in that seed form, so to speak, that he, as a descendant of Abram, pays tithes to Melchizedek here in this section. Everyone descended from Abram is considered as being in Abram. So when Abram acts in this section, all of his descendants are acting in him. And so Levi, the author of Hebrews, tells us paid tithes to Melchizedek. And he says, without dispute then, Melchizedek is superior to Abram. Which also means, therefore, by extension, that he's superior to Levi. This is the argumentation of the biblical author of Hebrews. And all he's doing, all the author to Hebrews is doing, is exegeting Genesis 14. So these are things that the original readers could have understood from this section, could have seen from this section. There is a priesthood bigger and better than the Levitical priesthood. A priesthood which is not temporal, which is not inefficacious, and a priesthood which is for all peoples on the face of the earth. And of course, the author to the Hebrews tells us then, or tells the Hebrews rather, that they should not go back to Judaism, which they were tempted to do. That's one of the major themes of Hebrews, is that the people were tempted in the face of the difficulty and the persecution that was happening at that time, the sense of illegitimacy to the Christian religion, which was perceived as being new, they were tempted to revert back to Judaism as if the Messiah never came. But what the author of Hebrews is telling them in that section is actually Christianity is not new. Christianity is actually very, very old. In fact, older than the Mosaic Covenant. Christianity is the flower of which Judaism was the bud. What is happening after Judaism is actually merely only what was happening before Judaism. Where you have a God in heaven who deals with people from all tribes and languages and peoples and nations by grace. Who has promised the Messiah and all who will believe in Him will find forgiveness for their sins. And therefore, it is the Levitical priesthood and the Old Covenant which is temporary and fleeting and inferior. And now that the Messiah has come and fulfilled all of the types and shadows and prophecies, you can let all of that old stuff drop off like scaffolding is removed when a construction project is complete. So don't go back to merely to Sinai. Go back further. All the way back to a priest who comes to us after the order of Melchizedek. One who was prefigured by this one to whom Abram and Levi in Abram paid tithes. 
go all the way back to a priest who represents and deals with God on behalf of all people. A priest uh, who does not bring um, merely a, a temporal salvation, but a priest like Christ Jesus, well, namely Christ Jesus, not like Christ Jesus, a priest, Christ Jesus, who brings an eternal salvation, which Melchizedek prefigured by the absence of a genealogy. So as we approach a section of Scripture dealing heavily with God's covenant with Abram, chapter 15... Chapter 17, chapter 22 are going to expand on these themes. And these themes are then again touched in great detail throughout the New Testament. As we approach a section of these scriptures where God's covenant dealings with Abram are at the forefront, are front and center. It's important for us to understand that God's dealings with the Israelite nation is not what God has been ultimately up to in history. God's dealings with the Israelite nation are subsidiary to God's broader purposes. We see that implied here in verse or pardon me in chapter 14 as we realize that there is a bigger and better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And of course, we see that unpacked further in the New Testament, but that's not our business tonight. Tonight, we simply see that the Levitical priesthood is subsidiary to a bigger and better priesthood that predated it, and which Christ has come uh, after the pattern of. And so, God's dealings with the Israelite nation is not what God has ultimately been up to throughout history. God's purposes from even before the foundation of the earth have been to ransom for Himself a people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation, including the Israelite nation, but not limited to the Israelite nation, but to redeem for Himself a people, not by the blood of bulls and goats offered under the Levitical priesthood, but by the blood of Christ Jesus who is a bigger and better priest than any of the Levitical priests ever could have been. That's God's broad, overarching purpose. And God's dealings with Abram's physical seed, and in fact, not even all his physical seed, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, but God's dealings with that special portion of Abram's physical seed is not God's biggest and best and most ultimate plan, but in fact God's dealings with that portion of Abram's physical seed is subsidiary to bigger and broader purposes, which is, again, to redeem for himself a people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation through the promised Messiah, the king priest known as Christ Jesus who has come after the pattern of Melchizedek.